Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel in his sermon series titled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, some of you guys who know my story, you know that I came to faith kind of later, what I would consider later in life. At least I was a freshman at Mississippi State University. And, and because of that, uh, I went through just a lot of difficulties, a lot of rebellious stages when I was a teenager. I uh, had some very dark years, made some very terrible choices. A lot of those things I, I deeply regret. Um, and I, you kind of wish you could just go back and get a, um, a bigger picture of life at those ages. But for some reason, you can kind of just chalk this up as the goodness of God. God has always been faithful to me to provide older men who came along to, as really fatherly figures, to mentor me, to coach me in, in whatever stage it was. And one of those older guys was a man by the name of Paul Cicero. I've, I've mentioned him to you before. Uh, he was a head professional, golf professional in Wisconsin. When I first started playing golf and got interested in the sport, uh, went out immediately to the course that he was at. Um, he gave me a couple lessons which later turned into a job, which later turned into an internship with Mississippi State, and still keep in touch with them today is uh, one of my very best friends. Um, Paul was a, a golf professional for about six years. I worked under him, and in my teenage years, he did all kinds of uh, things for me that I couldn't have ever asked or even desired. He basically put me under his wing, taught me the golf business, um, taught me different things personally for my, my development in the sport, but also in the, uh, the business side of the golf world. And, and despite these wonderful things that he did for me, I was still struggling as a teenager to find my identity, uh, to navigate life, to deal with the ever-changing um, circumstances of, of family, of what am I going to do with my life, uh, who am I even? and finding some ground there. And, and one day I, I had this awesome opportunity as an intern at his golf course. It was the summer before I went off to Mississippi State to start in a, a professional golf management program. And I did what a lot of teenage kids that don't know Christ do. And I made a, a split-second, horrible, awful decision while on the clock working under his supervision at a municipal golf course up in Wisconsin. It was a fireable offense. I uh, should have been dismissed immediately. I probably should have served some time for what I did, unfortunately. Um, and I probably should have lost the opportunity that I had to go off to Mississippi State to, to pursue a golf career. But by the grace of God, none of those things happened to me. Um, but one thing did happen that I will never, ever forget. Um, Paul, the next day when I showed up for work, he's got this thing he does with uh, his staff and his employees, and he calls it a heart-to-heart. -heart. All right, so he calls me back, and he says, Jared, we need to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And I'd, I remember it like it was yesterday. He called me back into his office, small office, one little chair. Uh, right above it was a cork board with a schedule for all the employees, their hourly schedule for the next two weeks, and some employee information. He sits down in this chair. I sit down in this chair. He asks me to come back. He shuts the door, 
and he says something to the effect of, Jared, we have to have a difficult conversation. He said, what you did here on the clock, I could dismiss you immediately. I could make sure that you never, ever continue in the golf business. And I'm, I'm kind of inclined to do it. But instead, here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'm gonna, I don't want to see your face on this golf course for two weeks. You're going to be suspended of pay. You can't come out here and play. Don't call the course. Don't show up to the course. Don't drive by the golf course. I don't want to see you for two weeks. And during this two, year, two weeks, I want you to basically just, just think about what you've done. You're going to go home. You're going to tell your parents exactly what happened. Um, and then if everything happens good and, and if we can move forward after that, we'll have a conversation about maybe you coming back and working here. And it was at the time, it was exactly what I needed to hear, but it was a very, very difficult thing to hear. Last week, we said, uh, one of the things that we said about the difficult sayings of Jesus is that one of the best friends that you could ever have in your life is a friend who is willing to tell you the difficult thing or even the honest thing. I, I gave you this adage that you might have heard before that it's better to be hurt by the truth than comforted with a lie. And I want to build on that with another quote that I found uh, just this week. It says this, never get angry at someone for telling you the truth, no matter how unpleasant. Punishing others for honesty only sets you up for listening to lies. Jesus in the Gospels presents himself as one of the best friends that we could ever have. And one of the reasons is, is because he tells us the difficult things. He tells us the honest things that we absolutely need to hear no matter how unpleasant they are. One of my favorite Proverbs is actually found in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, verse 5. And it says this, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And so here's my question for you this week. Do you surround yourselves with people who will only tell you the great things, the comforting things, the good and the pleasant things, or do you surround yourself, do you surround yourself with people who will throw you a ticker tape parade wherever you go? Or do you surround yourself with people who can lovingly rebuke you, can lovingly say the hard things to you? So here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at the Gospels and looking at the hard sayings of Jesus. And so far, we've seen at least three of them. In John chapter 13, we started with this one. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, Peter says, not just my feet, Lord, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share or no part with me. And that's a difficult saying, because in a culture of pluralism, where many people think that there are multiple avenues to God, Jesus is very exclusive. And he says, actually, there's only one way to God the Father, and it's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Matthew 10, we heard another, another difficult thing. If you're going to follow after me, you must hate your father and mother. And that was a difficult saying from Jesus because effectively what he was saying is that your spiritual bloodline, your spiritual family in Christ is actually more important then your physical bloodline, your spiritual bloodline will last into eternity. Your spiritual bloodline connects you to Jesus' shed blood on Calvary's cross for your sins. It gives you a new identity, and it also, ipso facto, puts you into a new family. This family is called the church, made up of all true believers everywhere at all times. 
Jesus said that bloodline is more important even than your physical bloodline. Last week, we looked at um, a great command that I love to give to my kids all the time. You must be perfect as your earthly father is perfect. No, it didn't say that. Uh, You must be perfect at the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, as your heavenly father is perfect. How can anyone possibly be perfect in their ethical standards as God is perfect? We looked at that and how that was a very difficult saying. Today, what I want to do is we're going to be right back in the Sermon on the Mount. And this might not be the hardest saying of Jesus as it is one of the scariest sayings. You guys, I know you know these verses that I'm about to read for you. And it's not just that they're hard to understand. It's, it's, these verses are scary. And they're especially scary for those who claim to come up and to teach God's word and to be leaders in a church and have positions of authority in a church. And we'll flesh that out in just a little bit. Can you imagine in the context of God's judgment in the final days, anybody, anybody hearing from God Depart from me, I never knew you, after they have done many things in the name of the Lord. This is a scary passage. It's a difficult passage. We're going to look at three things in how we, and when we go through this. We're going to look at how Jesus expressed this hard saying. Again, what does it mean? What did it mean at that time? What does it mean for us today? And then number three, how can we apply it? How did Jesus say this very difficult saying? I want you to look down at verse 21. We're going to read through verse 23. Later on, I'll come back up to verse 15. I think that's important. But look now at Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I was, as with other passages and parts in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the structure is often very memorable as well as teachable. It's didactic. Uh, verse 21 is going to function here as the summary introduction for verses 21 through 23. Uh, everything gets a little bit more detailed and fleshed out as you get to verses 22 and 23. What I want you to notice immediately when we read these verses, there's a major contrast. There's a contrast at the beginning of verse 22 and how it relates to the beginning of verse 23. Verse 22 starts this way. Many will say to me, and that's a future tense verb. Verse 23 starts this way. Then I will declare to them, and also a future tense verb. The contrast is between false teachers, what they say, and Jesus in his perfect judgment and what he will say. Uh, That contrast is also reflected back in the summary introduction, verse 21. Uh, Verse 21 compares two things at the beginning. Not everyone who says is compared to the end of that verse, but the one who does. In other words, words are being compared to actions in this section of Scripture. There's a group of people who are saying certain things, 
and they're drastically different from another group of people who are doing certain things. And so Jesus uses a very simple yet intentional comparison throughout verses 21 and 23 in order to show that just because a person is speaking in God's name, prophesying in God's name, doing miracles in God's name, doesn't mean that they are in God's name, that they are authentic, that they are performing the works that God has actually authentically called them to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are carrying out God's will. We have to have discernment to judge between those two things. Structurally, I want you to see uh, one other item in these three verses here. Uh, Notice the phrase, in your name, is repeated three times. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We do mighty works in your name. Typically, in Greek, if a writer wants to emphasize something, they will put a phrase or a clause at the beginning of the sentence. In your name is repeated three times, but it's not at the beginning. Actually, the verbs are at the beginning of the sentence. They're still fronted there, or they're still repeated there, excuse me, for stylistic and for memorable reasons, but the verbs are fronted more for emphasis. The great miracles, the things that were happening, the actions that were being performed all in the name of the Lord, and yet from inauthentic followers of Christ. Um, The repetition of in your name is there for stylistic reasons and memorability. The verbs are fronted for emphasis. One commentator, when he explains this verse, he says this, one must evaluate prophets by their fruits, not by their spiritual gifts. One must evaluate prophets by their fruits, not by their spiritual gifts, is one of the main teachings from this verse, these verses. Another commentator put it this way, participation in the kingdom is not found in words or in religiosity, not even in performance of spectacular deeds, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness. It takes us back to where we were looking last week in Matthew 5. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And let me, just, let me just stop right here and offer a word of caution before we go any further. Our postmodern culture is mesmerized by the spectacular. Uh, we long for certain things to happen, for God to, to manifest himself in a, in a miraculous or in an out, uh, outward way that is clearly displayed before all people. Our postmodern culture is unfortunately has manifested now what I would consider a, um, a lunatic, fringe, contemporary version of Christianity that's drawn to spectacular things that might not necessarily be drawn to the person in the work of Christ or God's power through the Father and through the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't have to sit up here and name for you celebrity pastors, people that go by the name of Christian, who have had unbelievable ministries while they lived on this earth, and then towards the end of those things, they were found out to be just a sham and inauthentic to the core, you would say. Um, We hear hear that they are clearly gifted men. We have a propensity of, of turning pastors into celebrities in America. We're drawn to people because of they're tall, tan, and terrific and can speak wonderful things. And they do all of these things, but at the end of the day, we have to have discernment 
before the next one fails morally and we're more disappointed and then we're trying to figure out what to do with all the books they wrote. I think one of the biggest hindrances to unbelievers coming to faith in our time, in our culture, is the way that the church can slip from worshiping God to actually worshiping men. Men who go by the name of pastor, men who go by the name of prophet. Um, Every time I see something like this happen in the culture, I think to myself and I ask myself this one question, why don't Christians have more discernment? Why can't we have more discernment and not, first of all, not escalate people to the throne of Jesus that are simply human beings? But second of all, use discernment to think through and evaluate critically what's going on. Uh, Although the word is not used in Matthew 7, Jesus was calling his disciples to discernment. And I love how R.C. Sproul defines discernment. He says discernment is this, learning to think God's thoughts after him practically and spiritually. He says discernment means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure uncovered and laid bare. A discerning person has the ability to see beyond the veneer. A discerning person is not caught up in all the smoke and mirrors. A discerning person is not caught up in the excitement, the emotions, and the hype as much as the truth, as much as the gospel. After Jesus sent out his disciples, I remember this story, uh, they came back with a very favorable report. Uh, the gospel of Luke talks about this and how the disciples were almost dumbfounded that they cast out demons and performed all of these miraculous works all in the name of Christ. And they came back and gave a favorable report. And Luke says this, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Matthew's call here in in chapter seven to look to the fruits of, of a teacher's ministry or a prophet's ministry or a miracle worker, Matthew's call here is to look for discernment, to discern God's will, and to look deeper past just the veneer. Number one, um, how did Jesus say this? He says this very structurally. He gives us a pattern. He brings out some contrast to communicate very clearly that some people will do a lot of things in the name of the Lord, but they are not from the Lord ultimately. And we need to have discernment about those things. Number two, what does it mean? Uh, Back up briefly and look at verse 15. Uh, Almost all the difficult questions of Scripture are answered by looking back in the context and forward in the context. So let's just back up just a few verses. Verse 15, Jesus says here, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits.'" Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, principle verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus said, uh, listen, this is, again, this is a very scary thing to think about. People will come to the church and they will say church things. 
They will rightly proclaim doctrinal things. They will preach the gospel even rightly. Was it, uh, I think it was Socrates who said something to the effect of the unexamined life is not worth living, something to that effect. Um, These are men who haven't examined their own lives. They're hypocrites. They're false teachers. And they're not just the scribes and the Pharisees that we know in the New Testament from the first century. These are false prophets that even go back to the Old Testament. There's many false prophets that arose and gave faulty uh, predictions of things that were going to happen. And there was a steep penalty for those false prophets. In fact, one of the uh, punishments for them is that they should be stoned if any false prophet's words did not come true. Uh, You can't always judge a teacher by their words. Just as much as we have to be doctrinally astute and gospel-driven and know the truth of the gospel in God's word through Scripture, we should be looking at a teacher's life, the fruits of what they're producing in their life. Uh, Every time we've analyzed a difficult saying of Jesus, I've intentionally taken time to just back up a little bit in the context or look forward a little bit in the context because there's a very real danger of taking one verse of Scripture out of context, making a whole big doctrine out of it, and then leading people astray because of one particular verse that you have. Uh, The key in understanding this and the key to understanding uh, studying the Bible, at least one of them, is that we would let the Scripture be the best interpreter of Scripture. Scripture is not going to contradict itself with Scripture. And we let the clear passages guide us as we look to interpret the difficult passages. Uh, When you exegetically look for things in Scripture and you deal with difficult verses, you always go back to the things that are clear, and you staple and stand on those, and they will not contradict what is difficult. Uh, when we go back in the context, you can see that Jesus isn't, isn't just talking about false prophets in sheep's clothing. Jesus is talking about miracle workers. Jesus is talking about, again, those who can do unbelievable things using the name of the Lord. Many people will use Matthew 7, 21 through 23, as a bright orange caution sign for people to say, examine your own life. Are you doing all these Uh, wonderful things in God's name, and yet your life doesn't show it, well then, are you even saved in the first place? I don't think this is a verse that you would go to look for eternal security. I don't think this is a verse that somebody should, should use for somebody else who's struggling in the Christian life and say, well, maybe you're not saved at all. I think this is a verse specifically for those who are false teachers throughout the history of the Bible and, and certainly into the first century for the Jewish leaders who are false teachers. This verse is also in the context of God's judgment. Uh, You can't read past this little phrase at verse 22. Look down at verse 22. On that day. What day is Jesus referring to right there? He's referring to judgment day in the future where all of us will give an account before God. Um, Judgment day is alluded to to give this an eschatological or end times context to what Jesus is saying. But what does it mean? What is Jesus ultimately talking about here? Have you guys ever been through a a thriving metropolitan that is a town that is known as Ryan, Oklahoma? You You guys know Ryan, Oklahoma? How many of you guys have been to Ryan, Oklahoma before? It's not too far, it's actually not too far from Norman. 
If you go to Norman, can I say that out loud? Are there enough Sooner fans in here? Pokes, you guys just close your earlobes, do like one of those deal. Uh, down south of Norman, Oklahoma, on Highway 81 is the thriving metropolitan area of Ryan. It, it's uh, about 830 people. I'm not even sure if there's a stoplight there. I've never been before. And Ryan, Oklahoma is, is famous for something. You guys know what it's famous for? So I need, a, I need a Googler really quick. Just put in Ryan, Oklahoma, who was born in Ryan, Oklahoma. And you will find that one of my all-time heroes, one of the greatest guys that can end any conflict in a split second, one that has abilities and um, giftings that are unlike any other who goes by the name Chuck Norris, was born in Ryan, Oklahoma, all right? And I love Chuck Norris, right? Because Chuck Norris could just one roundhouse kick and that was it, problem solved. It was just done. Have you guys ever seen Delta Force? Have you seen the second one too? It just as good as the first, right? Um, Walker, Texas Ranger. I grew up, I didn't have cable growing up. I grew up on that stuff. It was amazing. Uh, Chuck Norris was amazing. Do you guys, before the days of Nintendo, I guess I got to share this one other, just silly, so bear with me. Uh, remember Commodore, before the days of Nintendo, there was a, a gaming system called Commodore 64. And you attached it with a keyboard to your black and white TV. You guys remember that? Remember the game, what was it, Pong? You could play Pong and an, an Atari. Atari had a game that was called Super Kicks by Chuck Norris. And it was the greatest game that Atari ever came out with. This man that, that um, comes from Ryan, Oklahoma. And you guys won't believe this if I told you, but one day, I mean, I send Chuck Norris, I still send Chuck Norris jokes. We've just had a, a text string where we were sending Chuck Norris jokes to a bunch of people uh, here at CBC. <clears throat> one day I'm sitting in the airport in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'm reading a book. Me and Brandy, I, I'm pretty sure this was before the time that we had kids. And I don't even remember where we were heading. I don't know where we were going. We lived in Dallas for about uh, six years or so, five and a half years. Um, and I look over, and I'm waiting to get on board a plane. And I look over, and all of a sudden, down walks out of a plane, down the hallway of the DFW airport, is Chuck Norris. And I mean, I can't... I see the Wranglers and I see the cowboy boots and I'm like, that's Chuck Norris. There's no way that's not Chuck Norris. And so as, a, as this person who's kind of like, I just talked about being obsessed with people and worshiping people <laughs> rather than worshiping God. Um, as this person who like has a great fond just impression of Chuck Norris, I say the only thing that I know what to say at that moment, which was, that's Chuck Norris. <laughs> Extremely loud. And Brandy's like, that's not Chuck Norris. That, that's Chuck Norris, I promise you. Um, I was starstruck by Chuck Norris. I couldn't believe that I'd actually seen him there. And afterwards, as I was, you know, again, I don't even know where we were going, but I do remember having this distinct thought. I do remember thinking in that moment, um, I know a lot about Chuck Norris. I know a lot about his films. I know a lot about what he's done in Hollywood on the TV screen, on the movie screen. But I really don't know Chuck Norris. He doesn't know me from Adam. 
I barely know him. He was probably thinking, please don't say my name that loud in the airport. You know, you can really know a lot about somebody without actually knowing that person. Uh, Did you see what, what Jesus said here in Matthew 7, verse 23? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, is an excellent thought. He says, a little knowledge of God is worth a great deal of knowledge about God. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. These false teachers in Matthew 7 that Jesus was referring to, and those who will follow after them, I'm convinced they know a great deal about God. I'm convinced they know a great deal about Christ, but they don't know God. They don't have a deep, personal, real relationship with him by faith alone and his death on the cross for us. Um, how, do we, how do we apply this? You know, I'll never forget the time that Paul of Cicero pulled me into his office sat me down and had that heart-to-heart conversation. At the end of that conversation, he said something like this to me. It went like this. He said, Jared, your life from this moment forward can go in one of two directions. He said, you can stay on the path that you're on, making the decisions that you're making and following the lead of yourself and living for yourself and doing what you want to do when you want to do it, or you can completely get off of that path and get on a different path instead. You can get on a path that leads to life, to righteousness, to something that's greater than you, that's beyond you, and it'll be far more important to you when you think about eternity. Um, and he gave, me a, he gave me a life choice to make right then and there. I didn't trust Christ that moment in his office, but it wouldn't have been but maybe a month later that I did. Two, because one person said a difficult thing, great things came out of it in my life. Um, Two things I want to close with as we look at applying this passage. Number one, God's judgment will expose the true state of the heart. One of the principles that we get from Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, is that God's judgment is perfect. He doesn't just look at actions. He doesn't just look at words. He gets down to the true state of the heart. The Bible is explicit that all people will one day be judged by God. Acts 10, 42, Peter said that Jesus commanded his disciples to preach and to testify that Christ was appointed to judge the living and the dead. Every single human person, those who are alive, those who have died, those who will die in the future, Jesus will judge all of them. In Romans 14, 10, Paul warns believers that they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Probably not. It's in my interpretation. That's not a judgment that is for everlasting life or not having everlasting life, but that's a judgment for believers who have everlasting life. That they will be judged for the things that they did with the time that they had as believers. Uh, Some of the things that we do, do in our Christian life will burn up, like wood, hay, and straw. Other things that we do in the Christian life will be refined for the precious 
uh, things that they are, uh, down to the heart of what they were. God's judgment is perfect. It's final. It's based on the standard of His revealed will, revealed will and His character. Matthew 7, on that day, judgment day, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of the Father. And you have to read that verse alongside of, I believe you've got to read that verse alongside of John 6, verse 40. Because the disciples ask Jesus, what is the will of the Father? And Jesus says, the will of the Father is that everyone would believe in the Son and have everlasting life. What is a very basic, simplistic answer? What is the will of God for you? That you would believe in Jesus and that he would grant you everlasting life through his grace. Hebrews 4 says that God's word is living, active. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions not only of the hands and the feet and the mouth, but actually the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, our motivations, our desires, the things that are underneath our actions. One of the, one of the takeaways that we have uh, from Matthew ch- chapter 7 here is be discerning. Be discerning of Christian workers, Christian leaders. Discernment is a catalyst to spiritual maturity. Discernment is a catalyst to spiritual maturity. I don't think we talk about discernment enough in the church today. Every time I come across a passage that mentions it, I want to bring it out. Psalm 119, verse 125, the psalmist prays, give me discernment that I might know your testimonies. I might deeper understand your laws. Discernment is the ability to decide between that which is truth and that which is error, between that which is right and that which is wrong. Discernment is the process by where we carefully make decisions based on the truth that we have. A discerning Christian has the ability to see to the heart of a matter, not just what's in front of them, not just what's happening, but what's behind them. Uh, John MacArthur says discernment means accurately evaluating ourselves, people, and situations so that we can determine what is true, right, and essential. A discerning person not only knows the right things, but the things that should take priority. Discernment means uh, saying yes to the right things, but also saying no to the wrong things, and which things need to be done before other things in order to keep our priorities straight in life. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21 says this, examine everything carefully, and everything includes everyone in that verse. Examine everything, even Brad McCoy, even Don Dunn, even Scott Susong, even Dustin Long. Examine everything carefully, even Jared Verweel, what we say. Remember the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul praised them because they were more noble, the Bereans, excuse me, were more noble than the Thessalonians because they went to scriptures and examined the things that Paul was saying to see if they were true. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. It's abstain from every evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, and into verse 22. This is a difficult saying of Jesus. Hard saying of Jesus. But at the end of the day, I think the one takeaway that we have to come away with is this. Uh, true Christians have a right relationship with God the Father because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and for no other reason. By simply placing our faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross, 
we become true, authentic believers. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we will do everything right. It doesn't mean that we will say everything right. It doesn't mean that we will teach everything right. It simply means that we have a true, real relationship with God the Father because of Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection three days later. That categorically distinguishes you when you do that, when you place your faith in Christ. That categorically distinguishes you from every other human being who has not done that on the face of the earth. It gives you a righteousness from God based on Jesus. And now you go from being unrighteous, not related to Christ, to being righteous, related to God the Father through Christ. And if you have truly done that today, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 doesn't apply to you. But to those who are maybe on the fence, to those who are thinking about becoming a Christian, to those maybe even who are looking into Scripture and teaching other people what they think Scripture says, who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that passage is focused on you. That passage is focused on the false teachers who are not rightly related to Jesus, who haven't believed the truth of the gospel. And it's going to be a scary day on Judgment Day, despite the fact that they still did many wonderful things in the name of the Lord, that they are not in the Lord, they are not in Christ. Let's be a discerning people, that we can look at people's lives, we can look at their teaching, we can evaluate that for ourselves. Let's also be very thankful for a right relationship with Jesus Christ, by faith alone in him. Let's pray.